Welcome to the Caring Greatly podcast, a podcast for leaders who seek to transform healthcare with humanity. Dr. Diane Solomon is a practicing psychiatric nurse practitioner who specializes in treating nurses and other healthcare professionals, as well as an advocate for improved mental health in healthcare environments. Dr. Solomon sits on the executive committee of the Oregon Wellness Program, a group of leaders focused on provider wellness. In this episode, Dr. Solomon and I discuss the impact of poor practice design on the mental health and well-being of nurses. We delve into the specific trauma of the pandemic and the need for system-level support and changes to overcome the, quote, tyranny of individual responsibility that is too often attached to mental well-being. We look at the need to include nurses in system decision processes and for leaders to listen with an open mind to nurses' demands for system change including the need to mark loss and make space for grieving. Finally, Dr. Solomon paints a future vision in which nurses are treated as full partners in a system that prioritizes prevention and well-being for patients and team members alike. Dr. Diane Solomon is a leader who cares greatly. Welcome, Dr. Solomon. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you are a practicing psychiatric nurse practitioner who specializes in treating nurses and other healthcare professionals, as well as an advocate for improved mental health in healthcare environments. What are the kinds of challenges that you saw nurses facing before the pandemic in terms of mental health and well-being? Well, I think there was a sort of unseen, unheard, and unspoken about epidemic of nurse burnout. We have studies that really show that burnout was a problem as early or late as 2017. And uh, that was definitely happening before the pandemic. And many of the problems nurses are still complaining of today they were complaining of then, staffing that was not safe. Uh, for their patients or themselves, uh, being asked to do things that sometimes they weren't comfortable with. Moral mm. injury was burgeoning in the research before the pandemic. Trauma and no way to process that trauma and also just the uh, inherent hierarchy in our system, our healthcare system today, that doesn't necessarily acknowledge those that are not at the top or near the top. And what do you think the origins of, of those issues are? I mean, those are what you're describing are sort of systemic, the way the work is structured, sort of fundamental to, to work. Where does that come from? Well, I think it's multifactorial, certainly, but I can name a few of the things. Uh, lack of communication between mm. those who run hospitals and healthcare systems and nurses who are on the front lines on the ground taking care of patients. Um, I think a big one is red tape and bureaucracy, and we don't call it paperwork anymore because it's <laughs> all online, but the electronic health record and all kinds of administrative loops that nurses are made 
to jump through, which really take time from them doing their job. And those things definitely could be streamlined. And I think it comes from a lot of not listening or not hearing or simply not passing in the night or day mm -hmm. the people who administrate healthcare <clears throat> versus the nurses who deliver healthcare and also the technologies. I know that nurses get really frustrated that, for instance, uh, some technologies for while technologies in medicine have sped ahead for procedures and treatment and surgeries and uh, biologics, nursing technology has not kept pace and there's a lot of outdated technology that takes a lot of time or breaks, all those things mm. are irritants to doing the nursing job, which most nurses go into because they really feel a love and a commitment to caring for people and helping people get well. That, that makes a lot of sense. I, th I think I've worked with organizations in the past who've recognized that you know, both in terms of practices and technologies, things just keep getting piled on and on and on and rarely rationalized, right? A best practice around bedside shift report, around hourly rounding, around, um, you know, documentation, all of that just gets added, 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 and never sort of pulled back to reconsider what the overall practice looks like. So it makes a lot of sense that it's, it's designed in such a way that, that overloads the cognitive and caring capacity of highly capable people. So I don't mean to suggest that they don't have the resilience or the capacity. It's that the system is not designed to allow them to succeed in it. Exactly. Their cognitive capacity is best used by problem solving for their patients and making sure that nothing is missed and making sure that other members of the team are called in as appropriate. Uh, but when you have three, four, five even six patients in an acute care unit that no one's cognitive capacity can do the best job that they could do. Yeah. So how have things changed in the pandemic? You talked about a lot of the things kind of looking the same, right? Things we've heard like moral injury and burnout, but what looks different now? Well, I think as humans, first of all, when we are stressed and stress for a long time, we're all at our worst. Mm -hmm. So I think everyone in the hospital setting is stressed and probably irritated. Uh, the burnout rates have increased from 20 or 30% to now 50%. I've spoken to nurses on acute care units that are not COVID units where still they say all the nurses are talking about how they're going to get out of here and what they're going to do next, because all the units are really uh, low on staff because mm. so many people have left. And I think besides just caring for the pandemic and the fact that there have been so many patients and the 
level of uh, acute suffering and death uh, is way higher than most nurses went into nursing expecting to do. And that is a huge psychological burden and traumatic. Also, the politics and the misinformation around the pandemic, I think, have really stressed nurses. We've all seen stories of nurses in the height of the pandemic driving home from another shift where they saw patients die of COVID and looking at their neighbors, talking to other neighbors or in a public setting like a grocery store, not masking up or mm -hmm. refusing to get vaccines without a scientific or religious reason. And I think that is really demoralizing in itself. And then you have people who are literally attacking nurses, which was a problem before the pandemic, both physically as well as ideologically uh, or politically, um, verbally, uh, patients, family members, mm -hmm. etc., as though nurses are part of the problem. And no nurse went into nursing because of her politics or her ideology, unless it was an ideology to help people. Mm. And that kind of treatment is pretty unheard of. And you can only imagine how demoralizing, as I said, and traumatizing it would be. Yeah, it's, I mean, it feels fundamentally disrespectful to be putting your life and well-being on the line to care for people and then have to see others in your community both not acting in a way that's protective of themselves and others but then also attacking you uh, for the role you're playing which is ultimately a, a serving role and helping role it's it's hard to imagine how somebody's psychology can absorb that without being really traumatized exactly and of course, they're going to be traumatized easier. Most nurses, 85% plus or minus, are women. Uh, trauma, PTSD, anxiety, and depression all are higher in women than in men. And although nurses go into nursing really to care, they're very compassionate people. They're amazing at understanding and not judging people for their beliefs or their behaviors, there does come a point, you know, when a nurse has to take her clothes off and shower before she goes in the house or live in a separate apartment like so many were doing, especially at the beginning, that is going to make her capacity to understand and have understanding for others' choices to, that put people in danger a lot more difficult. That completely makes sense. So what do leaders and institutions need to do to support nurses, <clears throat> particularly now as we're recording this in early October, we seem to be coming down off of this most recent surge. Uh, vaccination levels are high enough in most, in many places that we can perhaps be hopeful that we're looking at the other side of this, or at least this current moment. 
how do those leaders and institutions support nurses as we emerge from the pandemic or, or even if we go into another surge? I hope you're right. And I am hopeful too, although uh, there we do expect another winter right. surge of some sort. But at the beginning of the pandemic, I was asked to uh, speak to leaders who speak to a lot of nurses about what they could tell the nurses about taking care of themselves. And I wrote a piece for the American Journal of Nursing called the ABCDEs of Self-Care in Pandemic Times. But recently I published on MedPage, I figured I should stay with the theme, the <laughs> LMNOPs of caring for the nursing workforce because there has been, although self-care is essential, certainly, uh, and nurses have probably never been great at it. They're great at taking care of others so they can learn a lot about self-care. At this point, a lot of, I think, hospital systems are thinking they can take care of the problem with self-care. And that is just not true. That I, a colleague of mine calls that the tyranny of personal responsibility. So the LMNOPs, I think, are evidence-based and a really good start for hospital systems and administrators. L is for listen. Make sure you are listening to your nurses. So many nurses feel that the efforts of administration, like giving them buttons or coins or Tootsie Rolls is so misguided and more a slap in the face than really acknowledging, hearing, seeing, and appreciating what they're doing. And the M is for moments to mark grief. As I said, most nurses never went into nursing to see this kind of level of death and dying or, um, what we call sequelae, the after effects, long COVID, et cetera. And the only nurses that are prepared to deal with death that much are the nurses that work in hospice. They would never have so many deaths without marking them, mm. without you know lighting a candle once a week in the staff room or saying the person's name in a staff meeting. It only takes a minute or two, uh, just a moment of silence, some way to acknowledge that as humans, we can't see this much death without be effect being affected and we see you and we hear you. And the N is for nurses included. Every administrative table, every hospital health system board should have at least one nurse. They generally have a physician or two, but nobody is speaking up for the nurses. No one knows what that experience is like and what the needs of nurses are, and that's essential. And then the O stands for being open to other perspectives, really putting your own belief aside and saying, okay, I'm really going to understand 
this, the different perspective from mine. We know from marital research that doing that on a regular basis, just in the course of relationships, improves relationships. Well, we are in relationships in the hospital system and we have to become more connected and understanding of each other. And then finally, the P is for peer support and preventing PTSD. One of the nurses I work with took some time to check in with another nurse uh, every day on her shift, even though she didn't have the time. This was before the Delta surge. And she really noticed she was feeling better just having perhaps an extra paid time, 15 minutes at the end of a shift to debrief would be really important or other, other well-known evidence-based strategies that we know prevent burnout. One of the things, there are several, but uh, Jennifer Moss in the Harvard Business Review wrote about several things that prevent burnout. One is being able to talk about mental health at work and not having it stigmatized. And I think a silver lining of the pandemic has been that people are talking about being burnt out. Another one of her precepts to prevent burnout is a supportive management. So the administration and the management really needs to be supportive and not just feel that they're supportive, but get the feedback from the nursing staff mm -hmm. that the nursing staff feels supported. One thing that's happening here in Oregon, I am on the executive committee of the Oregon Wellness Program, which has been giving free confidential mental health care uh, to prescribers, physicians, nurse practitioners, dentists, etc for years now, but we are really trying to upscale this to nurses. And in order to do that, we will have to hire a lot more therapists. It will take a lot more money. We are going through the legislature, but also through the health systems, many who have been supportive in the past, and we expect them to continue to be supportive and uh, the nurses seeing that their systems are doing things like that, finance, putting their money where their mouth is, paying for this free, confidential, self-referred mental health therapy outside of the EAP, mm -hmm. which the nurses feel seem to feel a little more comfortable with, those kinds of things really help. That's um, that's really important, and I I appreciate the um, the idea of normalizing access to mental health care and and making it truly accessible um, so that people can can get access without having that be a financial hardship, without fear of reprisal at work. Um, it's just such a an important component of it. I also want to go back to that acknowledging grief piece. Um, and I wish I knew the origin of this practice, but there's a practice that I love that I've shared often called, um, called three breaths. 
um, and three breaths is acknowledging when a patient passes. First breath is for the patient. The second breath is for the family and acknowledging their grief. And the third is for the staff. And it's such a small, simple ritual, but I, I think it really opens the door for people to start to say, of course the staff is impacted. Of course the nurses who've cared for this person, are, their humanity is touched by the by the passing of this person um and then it opens the door for additional deeper rituals and support practices that are so important for acknowledging that so i I think that's that is really important and something that's been missing from the system for a long time i think that's beautiful i haven't heard that before and that's fabulous and how much time does that take 30 Not, seconds yeah. maybe and you know we are humans we are social beings so to do that by oneself is good but to integrate that into say the staff meeting every week or the report once a week, a change of shift mm-hmm. would be really good for everyone. Agreed. And inclusively, right? So, I mean, the, the often the environmental services workers and the nutrition services folks have spent time and care on these with these patients and their families as well. So, yeah, I think as broadly as something like that can go, um, all the better. Absolutely. And what if a hospital administrator came and said, I came down today just to witness and be with you for the three breaths. And when it was over said, thank you very much. I'm thinking of you. How powerful would that be? Incredibly powerful, especially if they coupled it with, as you said, listening to people's response and reaction and, and, Understand not in a in an M M&M and M or punitive kind of way, but understanding because I I think many of these deaths are are not something that need to be delved into the why, but what else? What can we do on this unit to be more supportive and to provide additional? So coming to your L of the LMNOPs as as part of that presence of being on the on the unit. As you look ahead, what's your vision for the future of nursing practice, and what kind of leadership is it going to take to get there? Well, I tend to be pretty optimistic, and I also have learned to look at the long game, that things do not necessarily happen right away, but we just keep uh, fighting for what we know is right, and things do change. The needle does move, and I think some of the things we are looking to change around nursing reflect what's needed in our society. For instance, uh, nurses are 85-ish percent female. So I think there is implicit bias around nursing and those frontline nurses are not necessarily invited to the table where the decisions are really made. So that has to change. I think uh, equity within nursing needs to get better. We need to educate nurses and make the path to education easier so that nurses everywhere more likely reflect the populations they serve 
And we need to also be looking at all the system pieces that we've talked about, getting better, more streamlined system technology, uh, health records, uh, hopefully obliterating some of the things that don't have a rationale or actually are not evidence-based, but we just keep doing them that way. And I think nursing science has to really help with that to help nurses do their job better. I think, you know, one thing that really spoke to me when I was very first in nursing school, actually in my early 20s, in the mid 80s, I'm aging myself, uh, the profession, profession that smoked more than any other profession were nurses. And what we know now about smoking and trauma is that ACEs, adverse childhood events, uh, that happen to a person can predict things like substance abuse, obesity, mental health issues, chronic health issues, heart disease, uh, COPD, cancer, et cetera, and smoking, as well as many other issues. And I look back at that and I think, huh, so here you have a population that smokes more than any others that shouldn't be smoking at all because they know they shouldn't. <laughs> right. And uh, that they probably likely, I would love to do research on this, have a personal history of trauma. So I think we have to do a better job of teaching nurses to be trauma-informed with their patients, but also with themselves and be able to create boundaries and be able to say no when they feel like they're being asked to do something wrong. So what do I see when I look ahead? I see a culture that's trauma-informed, that's not racist or misogynist, that is really working on the social determinants of health, health prevention and promotion, which would which would bring us so far uh, in terms of ameliorating health disparities and would also save countless dollars upstream with major health disorders and concerns. I love that vision. I've, and I love that it's, um, that it's you know a little bit utopian, but I think you know when you look right now at the crisis that's happening in staffing, at the at the nurses that are saying, I've been putting up with this for a really long time, but but we've crossed over the line where I can't put up with it anymore, and I'm going to put my skills elsewhere. And just the years of experience and expertise and and compassion and caring that are walking out of the healthcare industry right now, that kind of vision is what we need to be aspiring to. So thank you for your continued work towards it, your advocacy, and thank you for sharing your perspective with us today. Thank you so much. A total pleasure, Liz. If you enjoyed this episode of the Caring Greatly podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. For links to resources related to Dr. Solomon's discussion, visit vocera.com slash podcast and click on her episode.
This is Liz Bohm, Executive Strategist for Human-Centered Research at Vocera. Thank you for caring greatly.